This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. But then I kept running into the thought, kept, I'm like, oh, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I was like wrestling back and forth with that question of what does it mean to be a person of faith in relationship to fear? And I thought we might use the word awe or reverence when it comes to God, but actually if God is who we claim God to be, <laughs> fear might be a, an appropriate feeling, an emotion toward God. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm joined today by CT's Nicole Martin. Russell Moore is out this week, but today on our show, Halloween's coming. So we're joined by Cutter Calloway to talk about fear, why we like horror movies, and why he's doing a deep dive on the subject for CT. Then we have a new speaker of the house, and he's an evangelical. So we're joined by Eric Cohn from Acton Unwind to talk about what's next for the House of Representatives. Finally, we're joined by Jen Wilkin to talk about the gender pay gap in ministry and why most churches don't pay the leaders of their women's ministry. Stay with us. It's that time of year again, the time of year when kids put on masks, ring strangers' doorbells, and threaten to vandalize their homes if they don't get candy. That's right, it's Halloween. Time for, among other things, scary movies. And joining us to talk about Halloween and fear and scary movies is Cutter Calloway. Cutter is a professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's also the host of CT's new podcast, Be Afraid, which looks at why we love, or in some cases don't love, scary movies. Cutter, welcome to The Bulletin. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Okay, obviously you've got an entire podcast to answer the question I'm going to ask you here, but <laughs> why do we love scary movies? There's so much horrible going on in the world and so much death yeah. going on in the world. Yeah. And yet I will drive around my neighborhood and there are skulls and zombies mm -hmm. and gravestones and it's all a big joke and our kids are mm -hmm. going to laugh and sing and dance and eat candy in the middle of it. What's going on? I think at the core of it, at least right now, sort of modern society, modern Western society, you're right. We've got traumas and terrors and chaos and fears run amok in all of our daily lives. But what we don't have really is a place or a space to explore those, to examine them, mm. to reckon with them, to kind of walk through them in some way that isn't just completely destructive or all-consuming. And I say we, I think that would be broader society, but then also specifically for me, the church community, we don't really set up many places where you go, hey, you know what? You're encountering all this stuff that terrifies you and really mm. dictates a lot of your behaviors, your decisions, your interactions. Let's really lean into that and see where that takes us because it's real. <laughs> You're scared. Now what do we do with it? I do think, though, the Halloween thing is really interesting because all the things we would tell like our kids to be afraid of or to avoid or to deny – 
here's this one time where it's open season and we celebrate that. It does offer an interesting model to say, how do you reckon with your fears in a safe place so that you can maybe learn how to go back out into the real world and deal with them adequately when the uh, temperature is turned up? My dad was a pastor and my sister always loved scary movies and I couldn't stand them. But I also felt like, Real Christians don't watch scary things. And there's this kind of looming theology that faith pushes away fear. So you should never touch it. You should never be afraid. You should never do all those things because that is too close to the territory of the enemy. But what you're saying is we should engage with fear. So what does that look like in a healthy way for people like me who are still deeply like, that is devil territory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're kind of getting at two things. One is just everybody's got different sensitivities. So I definitely am not a, oh, everyone needs to go watch horror movies and this will fix the world. We all need to be aware of kind of our own sensitivities, the ways that we're wired. But in terms of a theology of it, my question to you, Nicole, a good Christian woman would be, have you ever read the Bible? The reason I ask that is (laughs) because We've got in our own sacred narrative, our own scriptures, these yeah. texts that we're, yes. we're supposed to not just know about, but reflect on, to really so meditate true. on. And so many of them are just chock full of just crazy, awful, horrible yeah. stories that are not even just possibly the realm of the enemy, but are explicitly. Yeah. And so I think some of the question mm-hmm. for me is what you're getting at, that it's one thing to celebrate that. It's one thing to become intoxicated mm-hmm. by it. And no one's, or at least I'm not suggesting that. But it is something to be said for when we go, there are these basic narratives that we've got that are about evil, are about human tragedy, that we're invited to meditate on that can actually, I think, lead to faith as opposed to Mm -hmm. being the opposite of it. Early on in the podcast, I actually had in mind something like perfect love casts out fear, right? This was my thought of, I think the Christian response to fear would be, we're somehow eliminating it or, or overcoming it. But then I kept running into the thought, kept, I'm like, oh, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I was like wrestling back and forth with that question of what does it mean to be a person of faith in relationship to fear? And I thought, I think there is, we might use the word awe or reverence when it comes to God, but actually if God is who we claim God to be, <laughs> fear might be a, an appropriate mm. feeling, an emotion toward God. Yeah. And so part of what we're doing in the podcast, part of what I'm thinking through just theologically is Rather than think we're going to eliminate fear from our lives because of all the horrors and traumas, what would it mean to fear rightly? What would it mean to not have our fears misdirected, but instead have them directed back toward God so that we could really say, I actually fear God, and that's where Mm -hmm. my fear is directed, Mm -hmm. not all these other Mm -hmm. things that consume or capture my fears. Part of what I think is interesting about horror movies is that most of them, and there's obviously exceptions, but like most of them have a very, almost a utopian scatological mm-hmm. ending where evil is vanquished. Yeah. And so there's something about telling these kinds of stories and there's in, in a similar way where you take sort of the horrors of Halloween imagery and all of this and you put your kids in the middle of it and you make it a celebration, you make it a dance. It's almost like it takes these things that terrify us and makes it into something that's manageable. Mm-hmm. I'm going to create Jason or Freddy mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm going to create these terrifying killers They're going to haunt and rampage and do all the things that they do. But in the end, I'm going to package it. And when you leave the theater, the world has been rid of whatever these monsters Mm -hmm. until Wes Craven decides to make the next one, right? (laughs) Is there something to that, that there's a desire to create a redemptive arc inside Mm -hmm. these stories? Yes and no. So I, I think it depends. Like any film or storytelling, there's examples 
that would affirm what you're saying and right. others that would go against it. I think you're right with some of the slasher stuff, some of the earlier things. Yeah, there is a evil overcome and defeated. And in fact, some I have a good friend who is a Christian and makes some of the biggest horror movies out there. He says explicitly horror is a place where you can name evil as evil. And that's actually a good thing. Mm. It's clear, here's yeah, the evil, and right. we want to overcome it and defeat it, right? Now, his films, mm-hmm. are, it's not always defeated, but that is part of the challenge. And I say, I think there's an element where that's absolutely true. And let me get back to that in a second about kids in particular. I think there's some interesting psychological research on that. But there's a whole host of others that my first instinct is to go to what I would call sort of art house horror. This is the Robert Eggers of the world, the Ari Osters. There's another mm-hmm. new one coming out called Appendage, another female filmmaker, Anna Zlokovich. And here you've got what I would see as horror as a place to deal with essentially intergenerational trauma. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating mm-hmm. because one, they're going, this isn't something you defeat. And I don't want to spoil any of those movies, but if you watch to the end, what you have is a new way of accounting for the way these past traumas are continuing to haunt you. And I find these mm-hmm. really interesting, especially some of the filmmakers who are women and people of color are really, I think, allowing horror to become something that the genre always wanted to be, but was hindered by what you're describing, Mike, previously, where we got to defeat the bad yeah. guy, right? Now you have people going, hey, in my real life, I encounter life as horror. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how to integrate this as opposed to defeat it. And I find mm. some of those examples just really fascinating. And I personally enjoy those way more than like the slasher films and whatnot. There's this really interesting sort of hypothesis. What things like horror films or scary stories do is, They help us learn and train our threat response in safe spaces. And this specifically skews Mm -hmm. toward young people and adolescents doing it in groups. So the picture is like an antelope and a lion out in the Serengeti. And they actually inhabit the same spaces a lot. But the antelope aren't always fleeing the lion. A lot of times they're chilling and they like the younger adolescent antelope walk up close to the lion and they're like gauging what he Mm -hmm. does and doesn't do. And then there's times where they all flee, but it's based upon this space where they're together going and going, okay, what are the limits of this? What are the signals that I need to be aware of that when it push comes to shove, I know the lion's hunting and I'm peacing out. And so there's this really interesting thing of developmentally of how we're attracted or not to these different stories. Take something like Little Red Riding Hood, the original and the Grimm's fairy tales, right? These are some pretty brutal kid stories (laughs) originally. And the thought is similarly to go, okay, what you get in at the end where Little Red is with her grandmother, what big teeth you have, what big ears you have, what claws, from an anthropologist standpoint, those are indicators of what a wolf has in distinction to a domesticated dog. Now, if you're a parent mm. teaching your kids, what is the difference between our domestic dogs and mm. a wolf? You need them to know without having the chance to test it in the real world. Because if you test it in the real mm. world, you're already dead. And so part of the appeal Mm -hmm. of these stories for kids anyway is to actually, it's pedagogical. Mm. It's training them to go, hey, there are real scary things out in the world. And here are some ways to know whether you're facing Ralphie, your puppy, or a, a potential threat to your life. You validated this very strange practice that we have in our home of at night, somebody usually hides behind the stairs. <laughs> like it's literally a thing every single night. And my kids started it and they will sometimes get so scared. Like when, you know, one of them jumps out rah, like on the staircase, they'll get scared to the point of tears. And then my husband and I are like, oh, we got to stop this game. We have got to stop. It's horrible. And then, and then the, next the next night, night, the one, yeah, the one who was crying is like, rah. So, but it validates 
I always thought we're just a strange family, but it also sounds like this is part of the developmental process because when it's mm-hmm. time to go on the subway or when it's time mm-hmm. to walk down a dark street, at least mm-hmm. they're going to walk gingerly and they'll know the difference between a family member who loves yeah. you jumping out and a real need to be safe. My older daughter, a couple weeks ago, her mom in the middle of the night got up and needed to get something out of her room and snuck in and snuck out. And apparently my 13-year-old was up the entire night certain that a, a criminal had cut, broken into her house, walked into her room and out. And I'm like, Callie, and you just stayed frozen in your bed the whole time. So I'm like, I, uh, we need to go. We need to do that better. Yeah, if you think great. that actual burglar yeah. is in the house, don't just stay there frozen all night. We need to do something. That's great. Well, Cutter, you're a few weeks now into the podcast. I, I love what you yep. guys have done with it and have been really thrilled listening to it. I'm curious, what's the response been? Like, I thought we'd get mm-hmm. more people saying, Nicole, what you are saying earlier, no, yeah. this is just on the face yeah. of it, a fraudulent and working against what God would have us do. And we've mm-hmm. actually gotten very little of that. And maybe it's how we framed it. Anyone that's actually listened to it, I think, will realize we're not celebrating anything that shouldn't be celebrated. But the other side is, and I, this isn't surprising, but it has been, I would say, encouraging. And one of those things where you go, I sort of anticipated it, but the consistency of this response has been somewhat surprising. And that is, I feel like there's a lot of, especially folks who are either evangelical or in that sort of, am I post-evangelical or on the verge, that really walk around a lot of their lives in terms of their faith, feeling like they need permission for things. And Mm. the amount of people that actually really enjoy and love horror and watch a lot of it who are Christians, it's like they're coming out of the woodworks going, thank you. <laughs> I just needed someone to say, yeah. I'm yeah. not some horrible, evil, bad Christian. But this actually, mm. especially when it comes to, I feel like it might be somewhat life-giving for me. It's not just like a dirty little secret, but there's something good yeah. that's happening here. Thank you for doing that and keep it up. That response has been encouraging, but it makes mm. me go, where are the other realms where that's also happening? Of What are the sort of norms of discourse we've put in place that mm-hmm. allow certain conversations, but simply do not allow others to happen. And that's what I've been thinking through now, given that response of not just with horror, but with fears in general. What are the fears that drive us and what are we not letting each other actually talk about in the room? Have you found that there are any generational differences between generations that are attracted to horror movies in general or um, those who are not? That's a good question. The way that I've pitched it, my mom is an amazing woman and I love her to death because she will continue to entertain the crazy things that her son does. But it's because she, I think, listens to it to get to know me. Mm. Other people listen to it to understand their own sort of life. And so I think at least what we've done so far is I want to say we've made it accessible for people like my mom who want to understand a younger generation. And then Mm -hmm. also for those who are right there in in the midst of it. And in fact, it's my appeal to anyone when, when it comes to media or TV or film is the thing you're consuming or watching may not be for you. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it gives you insight into a whole group of people who see this as like the common language they use to understand reality. And that too is just as valuable as enjoying it on your own. There have been multiple studies done on fans of horror fiction, not just film, but literature, whatnot. Mm -hmm. And they have demonstrated more psychological resilience in and through COVID than those who are not. And fascinating studies where you go, the kinds of mental health crises we're dealing with, you've got this group Mm -hmm. that are consuming narratives. Now, again, this is not a like silver bullet, but wow, isn't that interesting that people that really are 
processing these in this way are demonstrating resiliency in these mm. trying times that others of us are not. Whether younger mm. or older, that sort of cuts across age and demographics. All right, Cutter. So before we wrap up, I'm just curious if you've got recommendations for Halloween weekend, Halloween night. Oh, boy. You've got a family that's got grade school kids. You've got a family that's maybe yep, got yep. their kids are a little older. And then you've got somebody who's just, I'm a horror aficionado. Throw me something I've never seen before. What would you recommend? If it's like young kids, you can't go wrong with Charlie Brown's The Great Pumpkin. So when you get a little older, maybe an adolescent teenager, the new series Wednesday is actually pretty good. It mm. gets pretty intense at times. But if I want to say if you're 13, 14 and older, not bad. A little older than that, if you're new to the genre and want to dip your toes in, I recommend the first season of Stranger Things. Really interesting mm. on a lot of reasons, but it's horror light, but not yeah. too intense. Later on in the season, it gets mm. full on horror. And Very then horror. adults, discretion is advised, but <laughs> I have watched things from Robert Eggers and Ari Aster. Probably if you want an exploration of intergenerational trauma, the film Hereditary mm. is there. And then another one that's quite good is The Witch. Now, Strong mm. advisory warning there, but those are <laughs> intensive. If you want to go a little lighter, one thing I just watched, again, this is a series, not a movie, but The Fall of the House of Usher by a guy named Mike mm. Flanagan. He also did last year a Midnight Mass, and both are excellent. He is a complete atheist, but is obsessed with wow. religion and power mm -hmm. and evil. Any of those I think would be a good, got a few days till Halloween and want to sit down with family. But again, Trust the TV ratings. If Netflix <laughs> thinks your 14-year-old should not watch it, you should probably trust them. All right. Cutter Calloway, thanks so much for joining us. The podcast is called Be Afraid from CT Media, and we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? 
I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right, so we are recording on Thursday morning. Yesterday, Mike Johnson of Louisiana was elected the 56th Speaker of the House of Representatives. Johnson is an evangelical Christian whose speech to commemorate the occasion quoted the scripture, noted the presence of Moses in the house chamber, and described the history of how the phrase in God we trust made it onto the walls of the chamber. Johnson formerly was a communication staffer with the Alliance Defense Fund, which is now known as the Alliance Defending Freedom. This is a legal firm that's defended the religious liberty of conservative Christians like Jack Phillips, the Colorado Baker, and Hobby Lobby. He also served on the board of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission from 2004 to 2012. In interest of disclosure, that was actually just before Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief, had his tenure as president there. Johnson has been a controversial figure in that he holds very conservative views. He supports a national abortion ban. He sponsored a bill that would ban it at 20 weeks. He also served on former President Donald Trump's impeachment defense team. He played a leading role in producing a legal brief that sought to overturn the election results in 2020. That effort was struck down in court. And then later, he was one of the architects of the attempt to stop the certification of the election by Congress on January 6th. No stranger to evangelicals, no stranger to controversy, someone deep inside the Trump wing of the party. Joining us to talk about this is Eric Cohn. Eric is the host of the Acton Unwind podcast and the director of communications for the Acton Institute. He's also a filmmaker and the executive director of Acton's podcast network. All opinions he expresses here are his and not necessarily those of Acton. Eric Cohn, welcome to the Bulletin. Thanks so much for having me. A few weeks ago, Matt Gates put a plan in motion to take down Speaker Kevin McCarthy. His goal then was similar to the goal that he had when he opposed McCarthy's nomination early at the beginning of this year, which was to get a more, quote-unquote, conservative, certainly more MAGA-friendly candidate into the speakership. So I guess we have to ask, did Matt Gates win in this whole thing? In some senses, I think you have to say that he did. He got someone from his perspective, who is more preferable, who is going to be more friendly to him. I, I think it's worth noting that Kevin McCarthy, say what you want about him, did seem to want to bend over backwards to accommodate all of the elements of the backbenchers of the House. Kind of had to do that with the narrow majority that he was leading. But I think in the sense that Gates got McCarthy out, which he clearly was not in favor of McCarthy's speakership from the beginning. It was one of the major reasons it went 14 or 15 rounds of votes to start with back in January. He got someone who's going to be more friendly to him. The problem that Mike Johnson is going to have, though, is he is living under the same sort of Damocles that... McCarthy was. Someone other than Matt Gates could stage this exact kind of coup, could throw the House into the exact same kind of turmoil that it was just in for the past couple of weeks. I don't know how secure all of this is, but at least for this moment, we can return to the status quo ante of political dysfunction in the House of Representatives, <laughs> which I guess we should see as an improvement. There are very serious things going on in the world that legislation does need to be moved on. 
what happened on October 7th in Israel. There's still the need, and, and this is really going to be the big test for Mike Johnson, is he's going to have to do basically the same thing that Kevin McCarthy did that started all of this, which mm-hmm. is he is going to have to work with House Democrats mm-hmm. in order to come up with legislation that is going to fund the government and avoid a government shutdown. To me, this is going to be one of the really revealing things about him, because there are essentially, to me, two kinds of politicians in the House. There are ones that think that you can win a shutdown fight that you initiate, and there are those who recognize that the party that starts it always gets the blame, and it never really works out all that well for them. It's going to be interesting to see if he understands the political realities there and wants to avoid the shutdown, or if he is also going to employ the underpants gnome strategy we saw from Republicans in previous years of shut down the government, step two, I don't know, and then step three, total victory. Mm. It does seem like Johnson is very much leading with his faith. His stance as a Christian nationalist is pretty widely known. I wonder how will that affect his ability to work with Democrats? He doesn't want a separation of church and state. Do you think that's going to affect him differently than it did McCarthy? And if so, what difference is that going to make? I think that's hard to say at this point. I think it's also going to be balanced out by, look, why was Mike Johnson the kind of person that causes even astute political observers to ask the question, who, (laughs) to get much further and to get the job over people like Jim Jordan or Steve Mm. Scalise, who are much better known? Him being an unknown and a very young member of the House, he's only been in there since 2016, was a benefit to him. Again, you rattled off all of the things that Mm -hmm. are known about him. Those descriptions are also his orientation towards the Trump MAGA wing of the party. That's a description that's true of a lot of other people. You can make that case about Scalise. You could certainly make it about Jim Jordan. So I don't know if those things are necessarily going to be barriers. So much of the Trump and MAGA phenomenon is a psychological thing. It is not an ideological thing. We've had very conservative and Christian speakers of the House and leaders within the Republican Party before So that, in a sense, is not unusual. It is how much of that MAGA psychology is he going to bring to how he attempts to govern the House? Mm. If it's going to be a lot, if it's going to be fighting above all else, that he's going to have a lot of problems because just like McCarthy, he only has a couple vote margin. Yeah, I I thought that was a really sadly telling moment yesterday when there was a press conference after his election. There was a reporter who asked Johnson, they said, you helped lead the effort to overturn the 2020 election results. And then they started into a question. They got, do you? And before they got any further than that, the congressmen and congresswomen gathered around Johnson, started booing the reporter and just shut the whole thing down. And they did it in... It was jesty. They were laughing. They were having sort of a good time with it. But it just made you realize, number one, it made me think of that line from Succession where the the father tells his kids, the problem here is that you are not serious people. That was clearly the case there. But it made me immediately go, oh, this poor guy's just cannon fodder. He's Mm. just the next one Mm. up. They're going to put him in there long enough to deal with this dirty business with the budget and Ukraine and Israel funding. And then they're going to skewer him for having betrayed the party and actually gotten the business done that needs to get done. Because the performance seems to be the most important thing to me. I'd love to be wrong about that. And I'd love for Mike Johnson to prove his critics wrong and that he's very serious about all of this. And he wants a functional government and he wants America to take the lead in the world at a moment when it's desperately needed. But nothing about the way this has gone down 
And certainly nothing about that press conference gave me any confidence in that direction. One of the things you can say about Mike Johnson is maybe he's just a very cynical politician. (laughs) Maybe what he was doing in leading the amicus brief and the efforts to overturn the election wasn't because of sincere conviction. Mm. It was because he was reading the the writing on the wall and said, these are the kinds of things that I need to do. And maybe he is a very serious person who recognizes the moment. We have all throughout American history unlikely figures have been the ones to lead at really important moments. Mm. So I don't know Mike Johnson from Adam. Again, I follow these things for a living, and even I had to go to the Wikipedia page to find out who Mike Johnson was. (laughs) I will try to remain hopeful that he is going to take this responsibility to do the Yuval Levin thing, right? Mm. To look at the institution that he has now been put in charge of and to ask the question, given my role here, what should I do? There is just very little of our politics over the last 15 years or so that inclines me to think that is a likely thing to happen. There's still that question like, what does this even matter? You've got a mass shooting and a shooter still on the loose. We've got everything that's happening in the Middle East. We've got earthquakes happening in in parts of Africa. And now we've got a new speaker. So what difference is this new speaker of the House going to make? And what should I care about? The turnover and the political churn can create a sort of apathy. So why should we care? (laughs) In a way, I hope that we stop caring as much about what goes on at a national level. We have elevated national politics. This is one of my problems with, you mentioned the Christian nationalism of Mike Johnson. This is one of my problems with nationalism, qua nationalism, is that it elevates almost all problems up Mm -hmm. to a federal level. And that is just not the way that this country was designed. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a weird and interesting country to travel across. There are 50 states. They all have their unique character. In accordance with the ideas of subsidiarity, we should be dealing with a lot more of our problems on a local level, closer to the people impacted by the problems and with the better knowledge in order to solve them. That having been said, there are a lot of important things going on. I think what we're going to do in aid of an ally like Israel is incredibly important. Whether or not that's going to be tied to continued aid to Ukraine is also going to be very important. And then there's also, if people have not been paying as much attention to this, I don't think, but there's the possibility of some kind of armed conflict now between China and the Philippines. Mm. We are a treaty ally of the Philippines. If they Mm. get into a military conflict with China, Mm -hmm. we are treaty bound to support them in all Mm. of that. The foreign policy kind of stuff that typically does not matter to most voters unless it is the overwhelming thing that matters, there are a lot of signals around the world that it could become very explosive very soon. Mm. Mm. So I think we should want to be hopeful that people will take this seriously. Those are the kind of things that matter. But a lot of the other things that have been really grabbing our attention in the entertainment vein of politics, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would hope get subsumed. Yeah, I I want to heartily amen. I think we look to our national politics to solve cultural problems. Mm. And so people get really excited about, we need a war on wokeness or vice versa. We need more wokeness. And there's this kind of illusion that's all going to happen out of the White House or out Mm. of the congressional chambers. It's been almost comical 
in particular, watching the GOP primary candidates all kind of compete on those terms. Here's how Mm -hmm. I'm going to fix culture Mm -hmm. problems. And yet here we are at this moment where we have these global problems, military superpowers squaring Mm -hmm. off against one another. We've gone how many weeks now? Three and a half weeks, almost four weeks without a speaker because the GOP allowed itself to become a clown show. I think it's great that we have a speaker. It's great that they're going to be able to hopefully legislate. But it's just deeply discouraging Mm -hmm. that at a time when when national politics actually does matter, you haven't had reliable leaders to deal with it. This to me is why the interesting thing to find out about Mike Johnson is going to be, one, how does he deal with who he is as a political figure? Mm. And that's all the things that you listed at the top of the program here. His history, his association with the amicus brief in support of the Texas lawsuit. How is he going to deal with that? But now really the most important thing is how is he going to deal with the immediate pressing concerns in front of the House? And that is funding to support allies overseas and get legislation passed that would keep the government open. I, I do want to note one thing you said with did Matt Gates win. One of the things that I actually think would be good if it did come out of any of these bargains is one of the things Gates wanted is a return to regular order in the House. Right. The way that we have been addressing, and this is really part and parcel of this continuing resolution and the emergency stopgap funding bill that is inevitably going to get passed, we don't have mm-hmm. an actual budget. We don't do that process normally anymore, which is why the only way things get sorted out in Congress now is in leadership's office the night before a government shutdown. That's not the way that chamber is supposed to function. And a return to regular order where members are able to offer legislation, where they're able to offer amendments, where they're able to debate it, and the House is able to do the work that it is supposed to do, reaching accommodations with intraparty and intraparty concerns, we need to get back to that. So uh, not a Matt Gates fan. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> but if one of the outcomes of this could be a return to regular order, there's enough pressure on whoever is in that slot to wind down some of the power that has been built up into it over the last couple of mm. decades. That would be a good thing for all of us and for the functioning mm. of the American system of government. So let me ask a question about that, because I'm with you. So regular order would be, for instance, when it comes to funding the war in Ukraine or funding support for Israel or extending the federal budget or whatever, what normally is has happened for the last however many years is that everything gets bundled into one big omnibus bill that you get an up or down vote mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And the idea of regular order is that we say, let's take Ukraine funding as an issue. We're going to write a bill. We're going to put it on the table. And then that gets an up down vote from the floor. One of the reasons Congress has gotten away from that has been, I believe, don't they call it the Hastert rule? It's the idea, if you're the speaker, you have to know that your party is going to overwhelmingly support the thing before it comes to the floor. So that's one of the reasons why things have gotten away from this. I don't understand why Gates, of all people, who takes down Kevin McCarthy because he split the party vote and made a deal with Democrats to get a spending bill done, why does he want regular order? Be- mm. Regular order is just going to see more of that. You're going to mm-hmm. see more things pass. A Ukraine bill is going to fly through because, sure, you're going to have 30, 40 percent, maybe more Republicans vote against it. But every single Democrat, for the most part, is going to vote for it. That would be regular order. That would be healthy. That would be representative of what the country probably wants. But that would tick off Matt Gates. Do you understand why he wants that, why he's arguing for that? You may be trying to assume some sort of coherence in the things that <laughs> Matt Gates is seeking that I don't know that we can necessarily project Fair onto enough. him. 
I, I don't claim to know the rationale behind what he once said. I, I think it is one of these things that I think he happens to be right about, irrespective of his right. reasoning for it. I think <laughs> I, 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 it would certainly lead to the passage of things that he doesn't like. It, it could very well also lead to the passage of things he does. Maybe he is just deep down inside this very civically minded person who is very upset about the way that the House rules have been uh, abused and power has been wrapped up in the Speaker of the House. If that's the case, then I, I certainly agree with him. But I find that to be a very difficult question to answer, especially when you consider previous statements by Gates. There was this great profile of him, and I'm forgetting which magazine did it, where he said, why is he on TV so much? Because if you're not doing that, you're not legislating. You're not governing. That's not governing. That's just not how it works. So I, I think it's, in this sense, perhaps it is a little bit like what we saw with Donald Trump, that he would pick up whatever the nearest weapon was to hand in order to bludgeon people with it when it was convenient. It wasn't about core conviction. It wasn't really about philosophical coherence. People like me who work for think tanks and and work with ideas attempt to apply these concepts of ideological philosophies to the way that this works without recognizing it at one Voters don't think that way for the mm-hmm. most part. And not even yeah. a whole lot of members of Congress necessarily think mm. that way. So mm. I have a harder time believing that he has this noble belief behind it. This is where I come back to my, if I can get good things out, I'm not always looking for angels mm-hmm. to be the ones who are going to fix our problems for us. So mm-hmm. while I am not a fan of Matt Gates's brand of politics and his political tactics, if we were to return to regular order in the House, I think it would be a good thing, even if it ends up ticking him off a lot in the end, which, yeah. let's be honest, would be fairly entertaining to watch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, Eric Cohn, thank you so much for joining us this week on The Bulletin, and we will be right back. We are back, and joining us for this next conversation is Jen Wilkin. Jen, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you. So glad to be here. So you had an article for CT this last month called Honor Thy Church Mothers with Wages. Tell us a little bit about what you wrote, what you uncovered, what you were hoping readers took away from the piece. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time in other churches other than my own. I travel around a lot speaking, and I get the opportunity to dialogue with women's ministry leaders really across the country. And so when LifeWay started working on research around what's actually going on with regard to women in ministry being employed in their churches, I was curious to hear what the results would be of the survey, but I also wasn't really that surprised when I found out what they were. What the survey did reveal was that the majority majority of women who are serving in their local church in some form of women's ministry leadership capacity are not receiving Mm -hmm. compensation. On the one hand, there's a lot to consider in that. What exactly are their contributions in their particular church? How much is the work that they're doing a part of a bigger vision for adult discipleship, which I think is a really significant piece of this conversation? But even taking into account that in any given church, these factors would play into whether or not the job was going to be one that was paid, 
the numbers that came out in the Lifeway survey were so high that they would be difficult to overlook or just dismiss and say, oh, there's really not a pattern that we're seeing here. When we think about in the article, the example I gave was that if you had someone who had major influence and and a formative effect over over half of your church population, whatever Mm -hmm. the designating cause would be for that, that you would want that person at minimum to have theological training, whether that's informally through your church or formally outside in a seminary setting. And also you would want to dignify their work, assuming that you're a church Mm -hmm. that is of a size that's able to dignify the work of a comparable role. It made me think of my own context. In my context, women's ministers, it's not uncommon for the lead of the women's ministry to also be the pastor's wife. So you have this double layer of an expectation. We expect that the pastor's wife Mm -hmm. is going to lead the women. We expect that women are just going to lead themselves and they're not going to get paid. And also, we expect that women are going to serve in every capacity possible. We expect that they're going to sway their husbands to give. Did you find that there were some overlaps in that way, that women's ministers are also playing other roles and that those other roles are also being overlooked? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the feedback that I got was also from wives of pastors who are the de facto women's ministry leader or the de facto fill in the blank. And they were in, in, in many traditions, the assumption is that role would certainly not be paid because Mm -hmm. it's a two for one when you get the the pastor, you get his (laughs) wife as well. And again, recognizing churches have different sizes of personnel budgets. And so that's a very real consideration. But what the survey did show is that even among larger churches, that that typically this role is not a paid one. We pay for the things that we value. We make calendar Mm. space. I always say, if you Mm. want to know what a church cares about, look at the way it spends money and the way that it organizes its calendar. And my own experience, when I started in women's ministry 20 years ago was that I wrote a note to the, the executive pastor and said, hey, you're churning through leaders in this area. This is a church of about 1,500 at the time. And, and I said, you, you need to pay somebody something because you're mm-hmm. burning out volunteers because it's too big of a role for a volunteer. Not only mm-hmm. that, but at that point, the women's ministry had no budget line item. They had to ask for money anytime that they wanted to plan mm-hmm. something. And I even had a supervisor tell me at one point that he didn't need to meet with me, that he, I could just let him know what the numbers were that were coming in for the events that we were doing. When I wrote this, I didn't put all that in the article, but this is actually coming from a lot of my own personal experience of just thinking, why isn't this cared about? Mm -hmm. This is over half Mm -hmm. of your church. So either you think what we're doing is not meaningful, or you're just happy that we're doing it indefinitely without receiving pay. Mm -hmm. So the executive Mm -hmm. pastor I wrote the note to said, you're exactly right. Will you do the job? And I thought, good grief, I've got four children, four and under. I'm the most unemployable woman you've ever run into. And I took it on it. They were flexible with me and they made it work. And then the ministry gained traction and it became a part Mm. of a broader ministry to adults. So I know it can be done Mm -hmm. and I would call it a benign neglect, but I don't know that we can say Mm. any form of neglect is ultimately benign. So it's something we need to think about. I'm curious for both of you, this is something you've probably both attended to for most of your ministry career in some way or another. As I was reading your work and I was reading the Lifeway research and then some other data on things like pay gaps, I kept thinking about some of the data you see about church attendance, that there's a slightly larger percentage of women mm-hmm. than men, right? Evangelicals tend to be, I think it, it's like right. high 50%, yeah. like 56 mm-hmm. to 58% female, depending on who you look at. And so it's like women make up the mm-hmm. majority of our churches and... Yet, to me, the number is mm-hmm. scandalizing that you see that, was it one in six women's ministry mm-hmm. leaders is actually paid? So I'm just curious, when you think about 
the cause of the neglect. Is there an element of it that's, we know women will show up for this. We know women are invested in this and you don't fund it because Mm -hmm. it's happening anyway. It's almost like the women's ministry seems to be Mm -hmm. going fine because the Mm -hmm. women are all showing up for it and they love it. So why would we spend money on this when we could spend money on a men's ministry (laughs) where no one's coming and we need to invest and try to get them to show up? I'm just curious. I'm just thinking out loud, truly. Again, I'm a local church practitioner. I am sensitive to the beauty of volunteer roles and not wanting to diminish the significance of volunteer investment for the sake of paid staff. And I do think that because women's ministry does tend to happen on its own, Mm -hmm. that there's less incentive to say, you know, why why would I put out a fire that isn't happening? But I also think that it's the fact that there's Mm -hmm. also not training or access points for these women. And so then often women's ministry becomes this thing that happens yeah. over to the side and in many cases is viewed as a redundancy. In other words, like if I'm teaching women's Bible study, why do we really mm. need that if we have the sermon on Sunday? And so there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of a woman leader in the church to begin with and the priesthood of all believers in terms of the way that we think about church. And what we end up doing is we end up promoting the model of the omnicompetent pastor or pastoral mm. staff in a way that is not healthy mm-hmm. for that staff, nor does it recognize the significance, I would say the essential and indispensable contributions of others who are mm-hmm. called into the ministry setting. It's funny, I built the post around the fifth commandment. It's what sort of got me thinking along these lines in the first place, honor your father and your mother. And I, I one person reached out and said, I think that was a stretch, mm-hmm. the way that you applied the fifth commandment. And I was thinking about the way that historically that command has been thought about. If you go back to the Westminster Confession, it says, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only mm-hmm. natural parents, but all superiors yes. in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's mm-hmm. ordinance, are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, mm-hmm. or commonwealth. And I think that the modern church has lost this sense of the fact that the family of God is made up of fathers mm-hmm. and mothers mm-hmm. and sisters and brothers. So when we look at these statistics, I think some of what we're seeing is a forgotten mm-hmm. value that has historically been placed on the role of a church mother. And I think there's also a certain theological bend that suggests that a woman's work is unto the Lord and therefore uncompensated. And I will never forget when I first started out in ministry, the number of women who said, just remember, your first ministry is to your family and everything else mm-hmm. that you do with that Takes is secondary. from your family too. Yes. yes. Thank yeah. you very much. So if you are teaching Bible study, and I've I had people say this to me even last week, I see you out here doing ministry, but don't let your kids go to hell while you're sending <laughs> all these other people to heaven. I've polled my male friends. No one has ever suggested to them that by following their callings, their kids are somehow damaged spiritually. Yeah. My husband will always say, no one ever says to me, why are you robbing from your children when I go to work every day? (laughs) I'm actually being the dad by going to work. That's right. uh, There is a lot to be said about a lack of imagination around dual calling for women in ministry. A female leader I was talking with recently, she's on staff at a large church and manages a fairly large staff. And she said, the men will come to her and say, hey, my wife is having a baby. Do we have a raise for that? She said, I've never had a woman who works for me come to me and ask, hey, I'm having a baby. 
right. can you pay me more money? And it's mm-hmm. just fascinating to mm-hmm. me. Not only that, but to see, we did a review just to make sure we were up to standard on what we were paying. And I'm a large church, so there's a lot of room for us to have consideration of these things. And we found that we were actually underpaying our next-gen staff, wow. which is typically predominantly female. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is in a church that's trying to get it right. Like we're working hard to make sure that yeah. we're trying to, to do this right. It's yeah. hard to know where that history had come from, or if it was simply because leaders hadn't known to advocate for those mm-hmm. areas to have adequate pay. And so there's a lot to do with it. And it does cross denominational lines because it's in the it's in the secular workplace. It's everywhere. Absolutely. I I do wonder about these solutions. And your point is a very good one. This is not just an issue for the church. I remember reading one of the statistics said that there are so few women in senior leadership positions and so few women who want Mm -hmm. to be in senior leadership positions. And I remember seeing that and laughing to myself. I said to my husband, I was like, of course not. That's like asking a woman, do you want to do 15 extra loads of laundry? (laughs) No, because the tasks and the requirements of my life do not change when I take on more work outside the home. But I like, how do we solve for this? I think if you look at hiring practices anywhere, not just in the church, we hire people that we trust or that we think we can trust. Mm-hmm. And we place trust in people who we know. And so when you transpose yeah. that onto a theological space in which is particularly the more conservative your theology is, the more likely it is that you're going to view someone of the opposite sex as a risk category instead of as a potential mm. colleague, then mm-hmm. it's just going to contribute to this problem even more. Again, when we go back to the paradigm of family and we say, this is my sister, instead of this is someone who Mm. is either trying to take power or is going to be a sexual temptation, all of the typical Mm -hmm. things that can run through. And I don't think they're top of mind. I think they're in the back of people's minds. They may not even be aware sometimes that's playing out. And in most churches, the person who is in charge of hiring or the person who is in charge of the church, it's going to be a a male. And the degree Mm -hmm. to which that person is willing to say, I believe in the family of God, and I want there to be visible church mothers, and I want to operate in a professional space with them according to a paradigm of one another's, of brothers and sisters. I think you're more likely to correct the problem when there is actual mutual respect that exists there versus just, we need a woman on on staff. That's very different. That's not the kind of buy-in. I want to be known beyond just, hey girl, how you doing today? I want you to know what Mm -hmm. my family is Mm -hmm. like and the things that I care about and what have I studied and not studied. Mm -hmm. I want to be seen as a full image bearer who has something to bring to this family that that is perhaps specific to the fact that I'm an embodied female. That means that I I walk Mm -hmm. through the world differently than an embodied male does. I'm curious, Jen, how do you think the larger gender conversation in the church plays into this? Because obviously the church has had an ongoing conversation for the last 40 plus years about the role of women in ministry. For instance, you're serving at a complementarian church. You were never going to be hired as a pastor, right? And so how does that play into the way that the, not just the question of whether or not we would pay women to quote unquote do ministry, the gap as well, the salary gap, that's a clear phenomenon in ministry. Yeah. At my own church, we found that we had a back of mind idea that because a woman can't become a pastor, then there's only so much investment we would want to do 
in her as someone who was a staff member. Now I'm talking about this is 10 or 15 years ago. And it wasn't like a, we don't care about women or we don't want to develop women. It was just like, but this guy, he can be a pastor. So let's surround him with resources mm-hmm. and opportunities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sky's the limit. And then for, but then for women, it was like, there was no imagination yeah. around what it would look like to develop a woman who was going to be in a ministry role that was not ultimately yeah. going to be a pastor elder. And really, in, in the case of my own church, it took heartbreak, but took getting it wrong and not having women in the rooms we mm-hmm. needed the men, particularly mm-hmm. around the issue yeah. of abuse. And I always say, I, I don't know that churches will reckon with this until they recognize that there's a mm-hmm. pastoral, a very real pastoral concern associated mm-hmm. with this. Women are going to tell me things that they're not going to tell a room full of men or their pastor. They're going to tell another woman who's going to understand who they feel safe talking Mm -hmm. to. And so then if I am trusted, I'm invited into rooms where I can help represent that view. I do want Mm -hmm. to say that's not all of it. Women should be hired for their competency, not just because they're women. We should be able to contribute things beyond just a female perspective. Mm -hmm. But the female perspective is a big piece of it. And so it's important for the upward channel of communication, but it's also important just downward. You want women who are able to minister Mm -hmm. to women from that female perspective. And when that's missing, we miss certainly abuse issues, but also a lot of opportunities to provide care that just might get overlooked. There's another layer of this, which is the coaching and empowerment of women who are serving in these spaces. It's not uncommon for women who, even in egalitarian spaces, who are at the table to feel like, I've got to dumb down who I am as a woman Mm -hmm. so that I can be Mm -hmm. heard and respected and Mm -hmm. so they become someone else. And I have heard repeatedly women say, I don't have anything to do with women's ministry because I can't afford to do that. I have to be, I have to be at the table. I have to be the executive. But there is a certain coaching that says, no, actually God made you who you are to bring your perspective. And that is what is needed at the table. Not that you become someone different, but that you really be who you are. And that's the coaching for the church. Let women be who God has called them to be at the table, Mm -hmm. because this is what the church Mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah. yeah, that's well said. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've seen as a challenge throughout the years is that I rarely meet a man in ministry who knows a woman he considers to be his theological equal mm. or even his experiential mm. equal in ministry. And I even more rarely mm. than that meet a man who knows a woman who he considers to be his theological superior mm. or his superior yes. yeah. in ministry experience. Mm. And so I think that is really going to impact the way that we think about hiring, yeah. what candidates we're going to look at, and then what responsibilities we're going to give to someone once they're in a mm. role. And that's whether we hire them or not. And a lot of times what we run into are women who are in a church and they are overqualified mm-hmm. and that they're serving in a volunteer role and they're happy to volunteer. Yeah. Again, I'm a big fan of the overqualified volunteer. Mm-hmm. I hope that I can be that myself in spaces too. But we wouldn't want that to always be the case. We wouldn't want it to be the case that we see a minimally qualified male and because he can become a pastor, we put him into a space and then, then flood him with resources mm-hmm. while we overlook maybe two or three women yeah. who are very qualified and who might not even think to raise their hand and say, I'm a candidate for this job because they're accustomed to those roles being filled by men. Thank you for your article and thank you so much for joining joining us for this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me on. That's it for us this week. Thank you for listening. And we will be back on Tuesday with additional special coverage of Israel Hamas and a regular episode next Friday. 
The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.